Thank you for downloading the IA podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was originally featured as a video on the IA's YouTube channel, IA London. But we've taken the audio and we've turned it into a podcast so that you can listen on the go. Enjoy. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General of the Institute of Economic Affairs. I'm home safe and sound from sunny, beautiful Sri Lanka and back here this week in the beating heart of Westminster. And what a week it's been. We've seen freedom, a very precious commodity, advancing in some areas but retreating in others. Here in England, well, we're going to see the end of all legal COVID restrictions this Thursday. But the picture elsewhere, well, that's rather bleaker. Abroad, we're seeing Canada falling further and further away from liberty. The Russian invasion of Ukraine has put both the freedom and the lives of Ukrainians at risk. How should classical liberals respond? Would sanctions work? I'll definitely not be short of controversial issues to take a free market take on with a stellar lineup of guests on this week's Live with Littlewood. Kaboom, kapow, welcome, welcome, welcome to this week's Live with Littlewood with me, Mark Littlewood, the Director General here at the Institute of Economic Affairs, back for this week's episode in the beating, throbbing heart of Westminster. And we've got a great lineup of panellists to talk us through the key events of the last few days. Later up in the show, I'll be asking Sam Armstrong from the Henry Jackson Society about whether sanctions against Russia can be effective. Are sanctions ever effective? And what should we be doing? if anything, about the escalating crisis in the Ukraine. I'll also be joined by IEA fellow and economist Andrew Lineker. He'll discuss what long-term changes we might see in society and the economy. Now we're finally, surely to God, uh, putting the pandemic behind us. And the IEA COO and energy and environment analyst Andy Mayer will be joining us as well to talk about the situation in the Ukraine and what it might mean for the energy market. But first up, to well, I don't know if we're going to be celebrating or not, but to ask, are we free at last in the UK? All the COVID restrictions are supposed to end in England on Thursday evening. Please give a very warm welcome to columnist, journalist, broadcaster, all round good girl, Ella Whelan. Ella, great to have you here. How are you? How are you? So, is, is Thursday this week Total Freedom Day, and what will you be doing to celebrate? Are there going to be people on the streets like VE Day back in 1945? I've lost count of what number Freedom Day this is because we've had so many and they've been rescinded and put back in place again. Um, I think there's going to be a subtle, quiet celebration among most people for the end of restrictions because I think secretly many, many people have, you know, regardless of what Sadiq Khan says about the tubes or what um, the government says about face masks or whatever it is, I think most people have slowly but surely been getting back to normal. They have been judging their tickly cough on the basis of whether it poses them immediate risk. They have been weighing up the pros and cons of continuing to not see their family and friends and deciding that actually now that the the genuine threat that was there a number of years ago to life and health seems to have subsided thanks to the vaccine program. Um, most people, though they might not be kind of waving flags about it, have got on with life. And I think that really underpins the, the fact that's become clear throughout the pandemic, which is that people do not necessarily um, act on law changes that the government's made. That is not kind of viable for people. Um, most of the public have been making sensible decisions themselves mm -hmm. without edicts from Boris Johnson. And I'm pretty pleased that that's now, I mean, I'm pleased he's lifting the restrictions, but I think any kind of societal change like that after such a big upheaval over the last two years can't just be wiped away with the tick of a legislative pen. Do you think that's one of the things that we've got wrong, that um, the, the government sort of thinks that it will pass laws to sort of send a message, it's lawmaking as press release basically, in order to try and get across to people the risk of it, we're going to pass a parliamentary bill rather than just simply issuing guidance and you know having TV adverts saying we suggest you do X and Y and I don't know writing to people who've got underlying medical conditions. It was all done by law. And are you saying, Ella, that you think we could have done a lot more of it just by trying to give people the facts, some public information programme, and now saying, 
pays your money, takes your choice. Well, the thing is, the government kind of did both. So it, it passed law, but it also had this very controversial, now that we people are finding out more about it, nudge unit, which mm -hmm. was um, not exactly passing legislation, but was most definitely using the means of public messaging to try and basically freak people out. Um, now we understand to an extent which was more damaging than was necessary. And so there, you know, I don't like laws being passed, but I equally don't like Terrifying um, the population. Yeah, terrifying the population through uh, TV messaging or things like that and telling people that they're going to kill their granny if they go outside for a walk. All that was really reprehensible. I mean, if you wanted to be a cynic, and I sometimes am in relation to this government, um, you would say that Boris Johnson has gone from being a kind of devout um, lockdown kind of supporter, someone who has lost all his um, kind of bones of liberty throughout the pandemic and has just gone along with the idea that we have to be cautious, 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 and now has suddenly decided in amongst, you know, significant clamour in Parliament for the for continuation of restrictions to release everything. And the cynic in me might say he has been having a pretty difficult time of late. He thinks this might endear um, him to the public. I've got no problem with that. I'll take it because I want the restrictions gone. But I think the what we have to learn throughout the last two years is that this is a government that sold itself in 2019 as being all for democratic change, you know, bit of Brexit, bit of levelling up, bit Lots of, of personal of, liberty and freedom. Yeah, and look, you know, Boris Johnson's the man who doesn't mind if you, you know, make personal decisions and he's all for all of that. It's not, because the way in which legislation was passed at a very late stage, without parliamentary scrutiny, we can have a different discussion about parliamentary scrutiny, with this current parliament it's not much use, but anyway, the, the kind of haphazard treatment of law, as, yeah. as you say, this kind of means of just taking a stand sending or a message. sending a message yeah. is a real problem. Um, Okay, but uh, let, let me, just before we move on to some other parts of the world where I think there's a less rosy story than there is here in, in England, I, let me put the case for the defence for the Prime Minister. You're right, he's had a rocky time. But he's actually, from, from the pro-freedom side of the ledger, he is removing all of these restrictions, not just um, in the midst of quite a lot of political pressure. I think uh, Her Majesty's loyal opposition wishes to retain most of them, from what I can gather, or been unclear whether they support the ending of restrictions. Sadiq Khan here in London has piled more restrictions on on face mask wearing and the rest of it, although those will also end tomorrow. But also in the face of the scientific community. Uh, it's hardly mm -hmm. that he's waited for Sage or Chris Whitty or anybody else to say, what are you waiting for? So he's, he's been politically brave, hasn't he? Yes, but you, I think it, to some extent, is too little too late. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't want the changes to be in place. I do want everything to be taken off the legislative books. But we have to understand that there are still remaining restrictions in care homes, for example, which is one of the places in which you know, it was very annoying and very damaging for us to not be allowed out of our homes, for me to not be able to see my friends, not doing that down. But the consequences of what happened in care homes in relation to restrictions, people suffering and dying with dementia without being able to see their loved ones, horrendous scenes of people being left unfed because there weren't enough carers because they were too scared of catching COVID, all that kind of stuff hasn't been changed. And yet again, the government has, I think, um, deprioritized the elderly and what's going on there. So there are, there are still specific instances in where it's going wrong. But, you know, Boris Johnson is someone who has, and I've never been a fan of him, I've been a fan of some of the things he supported, like Brexit, like pushes against kind of nice state interventions and liberty and all of that. But he has always been an opportunist who has decided to do things when the last person who spoke in his ear suggested that he um, should do it. So whether it was Dominic Cummings or now his wife or someone else or sage experts, he has proven himself throughout this pandemic to not be able to stick to any kind of principle. Well, let's look uh, further afield. Um, I'm going to come to Canada in a minute, but uh, elsewhere the picture is is a lot bleaker than it appears to be in the United Kingdom, right? Italy has retained COVID passes, which have been described as pointlessly tyrannical. France's vaccine passport system has started deactivating passports months in advance of their expiry date to force or encourage people to get boosters. Um, but Canada, what on earth is going on in Canada? I thought Trudeau, Trudeau's the leader of the Liberal Party. I think uh, they, they've now invoked emergency powers, first time in 50 years. Um, they just got it through Parliament, uh, well, by a couple of dozen votes uh, against the opposition Conservatives and Quebec nationalists. You've described what's happening in Canada as a descent into tyranny. Tell us what's gone so badly wrong there, Ella. The thing about Trudeau is that he gets, display, he gets portrayed as this kind of 
liberal lobby. I mean, I know Paul Mason is not exactly in touch with reality anymore, but he described him in a recent New Statesman column as the poster boy for global liberalism. And that's how he's kind of portrayed this guy who knows how to say all the right things, yeah. although he stumbled over the LGBTQ. But he was trying to be hip and modern. But yeah, he's, you know, he, okay, sure, he's done blackface in the past, but he's sorry for that now. He takes the knee and does all the right things. But when it comes to, so he's, he gets a kind of gold star from, from liberals across the world. But when it comes to a very real material challenge, there are protesters on your streets. They're demanding something that you might disagree with, but is, you know, in the, isn't uh, kind of flat eartherism. It's against vaccine mandates, not vaccines per se. Um, they're, not, they're not kind of being violent. They're setting up bouncy cars and stuff like that. They might be pissing off a few Ottomans and, and actually support for them is sort of mixed well, in protests character. always piss off a few but people. But protests yeah. are supposed to be dismissive and blah, blah, blah. And you have a challenge. Do you, are you a political leader that rises to that and takes on the debate, or are you someone that is a coward? And I think he's been extremely cowardly in his use of authoritarian measures. Now we have um, you know, the authorities, police officers, mounted on horses, trampling people within the protests, um, people's bank accounts being frozen. Essentially, a state starving out its citizens, threats to remove children from protesters' care and keep them in, within social services and then take them officially off parents if they're not collected. There's also a suggestion that they do the same to pets and then euthanise the pets if they weren't collected. So it's a mad range yeah. of things that he's doing, which proves that no matter what kind of liberal sheen you put on someone like that, you can't put lipstick on a pig. He is fundamentally acting like an authoritarian. But he's frozen 76 bank accounts linked to the process, protests. I mean, again, you're not really dealing with organised crime here or terrorism, right? You're dealing with a political movement you disapprove of. Well, the, exactly. And, I mean, the, the kind of liberal left is always talking about the fact that it wants people to get ordinary people's voices heard. And in the truckers' movement, whatever you want to say about it, I think there's some good things, there's some bad things to it. Um, this is a grassroots, you know, all the buzzwords of, of modern kind of activism, organisation that has a global reach. It's got supporters sending in money, you know, f someone sending in $50 from somewhere here, someone sending in $100,000 from somewhere else. Um, in order to enact political change, that is what happens with Extinction Rebellion, that is mm -hmm. what happens with Black Lives Matter, that's what happens with every organisation. Um, but the, the Canadian government has now enacted new emergency powers that haven't been in place for 50 years when Trudeau's dad was in power to um, use this thing called, I think it was an act of terrorism, which allows the government to freeze the finances. So not only are individual bank accounts being um, frozen, but they are also removing, uh, Go, GoFundMe is removing the campaign, the access to funds through the campaign set. There was a suggestion at one point that GoFundMe would reallocate funds. That was that would be outrageous. You've given to what they thought was a good cause. You know, you've given your 50 quid or whatever. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. It would be completely crazy. And you just have to say to people, imagine if this was being done to uh, you know, a religious organisation. Imagine if this was being done to an environmentalist campaigners. The fact is, because the individuals on these protests are truckers, because, as I pointed out in the article, they are people who have spent the pandemic, you know, um, continuing to keep Canadian society yeah. afloat, while the rest of the people who are, I think I called them laptop bombardiers, who were sat at home waiting for their deliveries to arrive, of these truckers who, you know, had no rest stops, everything was shut down, urinating in the, the ones doing the deliveries. Pots in yeah. their trucks, you know, terrible life for two yeah. years, and they've now turned their back on them. I think yeah. that tells you something about uh, solidarity and progressive politics. In this is intriguing. We'll, we'll link to um, Ella's article in the live chat and in the show notes below. There's one thing um, before we bring in our next guest, Ella, that I wanted to explore with you, and that's how partial people seem to be, not about the policies, but about the person who's enacting them. You, you mentioned a few minutes ago, you're not a big fan of Boris Johnson, but you like some of the things he does. I mean, that seems to me a fairly balanced view. But with Trudeau, where are the... Uh, can you imagine if we still had President Trump and he was doing the similar sort of things in the United States of America? He would be lambasted for being a fascist, a Nazi and everything else. And the people who would be shrieking that, by and large, honourable, consistent exceptions, such as yourself maybe, but by and large, 
the kind of metropolitan left don't seem to have raised any hackles at all against what Trudeau's done. Well, so is it now just a question of kind of which personality you like rather than which rather than which policies you approve of? Yeah, well, there is an exact, you can, t it's been tested already. So when Trump um, described some, when he went to Kenosha during the kind of riots that were happening in America after the murder of George Floyd, he described some of the Black Lives Matter protesters and people that were there as terrorists. They were saying, you're saying there's nothing political about this. It's an act of terrorism. And CNN and all these other American outlets released statements saying this, this is, here it is. This is mm -hmm. proof that Trump is an autocrat. Mm -hmm. He's calling political protesters terrorists. This is it. Fascism is alive in America. Yeah. Justin Trudeau doesn't just, doesn't, he's probably smart enough to not use the T word. Yeah, he doesn't use his, such inflammatory yes, language. Press yeah. releases, but he enacts a law related to terrorism that, <laughs> uh, that does exactly the same thing, if not more. And there is silence across um, the Western liberal media. The fact that there haven't been um, dis live discussions in Parliament, any kind of condemnation, at a time when, by the way, everyone is screaming about the prospect of war and fascism in Russia, and um, moving back to time, re relating to previous times in history, the fact that there's been nothing said about Canada, by the way, I don't want to compare Trudeau to Mussolini or anything no, sure. like that, but that there has been no criticism, I think, tells you something about the shallowness of of politics, because you're right, it is about the individual, because the, the, the way up the toss-up is, do you ditch Trudeau and all the kind of liberal stuff that he quite easily embodies for this quite tricky thing of this trucker protest and what you do with it, or do you just ignore those yeah, kind of yeah. dirty truckers and allow Trudeau to get a free pass? I think he's been given a free pass. Uh, so it's disappointing, isn't it? Politics is now about who you are and what you say, not about what you do. Um, Ella, stay with us, but I'm delighted to welcome our second guest to the show. Please give a very warm welcome to IEA academic fellow, economist, Andrew Lillico. Andrew, welcome, welcome, welcome. Good to have you with us. Good to have you with us. Um, so I want to stay on, on, on free at last uh, for a while, and then we'll come into, we'll, we'll touch on some of the economics of it. Andrew, how are you? Is this finally it? Thursday, that's it. We're out of it. As Ella was saying earlier, you know, it feels like we've had to win this by, you know, incrementally. Unsurprisingly, I guess, I've kind of lost track of which restrictions were in when and relaxed when and brought in when. But is Thursday this week the end? And can we say we are free at last? I suspect so. I mean, it, there's no guarantee, of course, that, you, that they wouldn't be in six months' time or who knows when, somewhere in the world, some other new variant <coughs> that in the same way that Omicron turned out completely sure. unexpectedly from abroad, then does the same kind of thing. But at this stage, we now have more than 75% of us have, uh, have had some form of COVID uh, and uh, almost everybody else is vaccinated. So levels of immunity are very high. The, uh, the infection fatality rate is now lower than that of an ordinary seasonal flu. Uh, so it'd be very hard to justify any restrictions. On the other hand, it's pretty hard to justify the restrictions they brought in for Omicron. I mean, to, to be honest, uh, it's, it's pretty hard to have justified any of the restrictions they've had since April. Uh, I, it depends. I mean, and I think that the way that things have gone, when, when the stories of how the NHS was going to be overwhelmed got tested, none of it ever happened. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think people haven't looked enough at the question of, well, does that mean that all the stories if, of how if you'd opened up in April, uh, then, then things wouldn't, wouldn't have been overwhelmed? Does that... I mean, should we not revisit that question again? But, I mean, it's probably we're, most people are just grateful enough to, for the whole thing to be over without thinking too much about yep. uh, mistakes that were made back in April. Um, but, yeah, I, I, my, my other feeling about this is that um, the politicians have completely lost faith in anything to do with any of the modelers. So each time... Well, and rightly so. And rightly I mean, so, yeah. It's July and then September and then December. The politicians ignored the modelers. The politicians completely won, not, and not even just by a small amount. So uh, I think that it would take something very strange now for them to agree to have any kinds of restrictions. I think you would yeah. really, I mean, I think you're going to have to have the bodies actually piling high in the car parks before they start to act next time. So it's really interesting. One of my favourite tweets from last week, uh, which was not, a, well, indirectly about the pandemic, was uh, as the storm was hitting us, storm Eunice was hitting us, a uh, brilliant tweet that said, uh, Neil Ferguson and Sage have predicted that the winds will reach 2,000 miles an hour by 5pm. And that did seem to be some of the exaggeration uh, that we'd seen. But Ella, let me bring you in on this. Do you think we can go through a post-mortem here and argue, you know, perhaps last April we could have ended things and there'll be a full inquiry and books will be written and movies will be made? But do you think, even if we can put this sorry tale behind us, it's changed our approach to risk, that you could imagine 
say, restrictions coming in for a bad bout of seasonal flu, which we never would have considered five years ago, but now might be back to all face mask wearing, or, you know, you need to show you've had the flu jab if you want to go to a football match. Do you think we'll be living with the psychological legacy of this and a change in our approach to risk, even if there's no new variants and COVID-19 can be consigned to history? Yes, it depresses me to say so, but I think that not just because there is open discussion about the fact that COVID could return, I mean, that's something that people keep saying, and, oh, there's this new strain, or maybe this and that. There are still whispers about that kind of thing. Um, there is discussion about the effectiveness of sanitising and, do, you know, even though it's small things like sanitising, but the rigmarole of it, of not touching certain things, not shaking hands with people, would be good around old people to prevent them dying from flu. Sure. All these things, um, I think it's not just that we've developed a new approach to risk, but we've compounded old trends that you've been talking about for years in relation to public health with this idea that there are certain things about society and individual freedom that you should sacrifice to at the altar of this thing public health that has become such a bloated concept um, not in terms of it, it, you know obviously if we have a new emergency of a new deadly virus I might we might all be saying something different because we forget that we all got caught off guard two years ago and that was very serious but it is important to have a post-mortem and to, not just some kind of government whitewash inquiry of which there have been several by now already, but a serious assessment of what went wrong and what mistakes the government made. Not to haul them over the coals, although I, I would quite like that, but to ensure that the same mistakes aren't made in the future because we will be back in situations like this. There is the reality of living in an you know, yeah. exciting global world in which things, sure. you know, people travel and viruses travel. And in order to preempt that, we have <coughs> to be able to get better at managing the cost of restricting society which was great and I think underestimated and balance that up with the um, price of protecting society sure. and at the moment it's just way out of whack. Andrew what's your take on this generally as an economist but do you think uh, I mean I've always thought uh, policymakers ability to properly judge risk has been way too risk adverse and um, and very partial. You know, some risks are taken extraordinarily seriously, others are, uh, are ignored. Uh, do you think our appetite for risk has diminished still further? I mean, if we were to look at the storm, um, totally three people died in the UK as a result. Tragic, yes, but I mean, five to ten people every day die in road accidents. It's not particularly surprising that some would die in a storm. People were told to stay at home, schools and businesses shut in many areas. Transport for London urged people to avoid non-essential travel in and out of the capital, um, unless it was you know, only take a journey if it's essential. I considered going to Saints versus Everton to be essential travel on Saturday, so that was a three-hour drive. Uh, it, but is all this typical of uh, an ever lower appetite for sensibly managing risk? I'm not just saying let's just be anarchic about it. I agree with that. You've got to balance things up. But we always seem to balance on the extreme side of caution, I would say. I think there's a couple of different things going on here. So I would say that, first of all, there is a correct diminishing appetite for risk over time, which is associated with increasing longevity and increasing pleasantness of our lives. So um, if, you're, if you're only going to live to 50 and you're 45, then you might well go out in a storm and risk yep, getting yep. Uh, squashed because um, you know, you've already had a good innings. Yep. Whereas if you're going to live to be 120, yep. uh, then yep. the cost of going out in that storm sure. when you're 45 is getting pretty high. In fact, I think that to be honest, I think that's probably one of the main drivers, if not the biggest driver, of the reduction in tobacco use uh, over the decades is increasing longevity of non-tobacco right. uses. makes it more and more expensive to do that. Yep. And I think that's just one illustration of, uh, of um, something in the case of tobacco is quite a clear one. You know, you die at 60, yep. 65, but if you smoke... But you're saying if you were going to die at 65 anyway, right. then sort of what's exactly. the problem? But if now you've got a if fair chance of making it to 100... That's right, it gets yep. very expensive. And you have much the same thing with, you know, high fat, salt and sugar and general lifestyle things and other kinds of risks. And it may well be that in the future it turns out that there are things which we think are perfectly ordinary to do today um, that if, if, you, if they made the difference between you living at 100 and 130, mm -hmm. you know, would you, how often would you drink your beer? For example, I'm a lifer on that one. Yeah, too yeah. Late but for you me. are, but yeah. you are. But if you were 20 
and, yeah. and you thought, well, if I drink beer all my life, then I'm going to be, live to be 100. And if I don't drink beer, I'm going to live to be 130. Might, then, yeah. then it might make a difference. I guess so. Uh, and, I think, and I think that there is that. But at the same but time... But we're going to die of boredom aged 130, uh, basically. Uh, but the, uh, there's also, the rest of life is pretty exciting uh, when you're not doing those things these days compared with the past. We have a quite exotic set of things to do. And that's actually one of the things with some of the stuff like lockdown. I mean, once upon a time, if everybody had been closing their houses, then what would you have been able to do? Whereas yeah. the number of things that we've found that to entertain ourselves... Uh, with our very diverse modern lives. It gives us lots of different opportunities of ways to go about things. Ella, you're going to be a bit more fun-loving than Andrew on this, aren't you? What? <laughs> well, I think that the question of the balance between quantity of life and quality of life became really apparent throughout the pandemic when you had lots of people who were classed as olds, you know, sort of like 70, 80 and over, but who were very active, lots of, you know, 85-year-olds still jogging around my local park, who said, well, I know that I'm meant to be in the category that is supposed to be shielding because I'm meant to prolong my life into my 90s and whatever. But actually, the cost right now of me not seeing my grandkids or not going out and enjoying life at this age is too great. I don't care if it knocks me off. I want to be able to see my family and friends. It was particularly poignant in care homes, as I've already mentioned. So there's this sort of slight, I think, slightly... Um, superficial way of looking at what makes life enjoyable, what makes life, you were very good at this on the Moral Maze last week, of what makes life worth living, which is the, the which for each individual is going to be different. And so having a uh, government come in and saying, we've made the decision that not just in a time of emergency, but for two years and perhaps longer, that we think this is the best way to live life, to live cautiously, to you know um, put in all these measures. You don't have to be a kind of um, mm -hmm. 20 pack a day sort of paragliding person to understand that there are limitations to that that might make life not as enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. I get it. And Andrew, do you think, because I get your general point that, um, uh, and it, it, it's not dissimilar to the point that the richer a society gets, not just the more it spends on healthcare, but the higher proportion it spends on healthcare, because there's only so many widescreen TVs and loaves of bread you can buy, whereas there's almost a limitless amount you can spend on trying to uh, discover the elixir of eternal life. But just to finish on risk, do you, do you think that we balance them up rationally, or do we consider Storm, Eunice and COVID-19 to be colossal risks requiring all sorts of warnings, whereas sort of crossing the road or walking home drunk or catching flu, we are, well that's just part and parcel of normal life and when you actually dig into the statistics we price them wrongly don't we? Well I suspect there's quite a lot of salience I mean people are fairly bad at certain kinds of maths I mean that's just obviously true, true. but but I, I think that one of the things that the, the things that they do is to um, use things which are salient and politicians do it as well so you get the business where there's a plane crash and people stop going on planes for a couple of weeks and then they kind of work it out and that's not necessarily as stupid as people often allege because it could be so it could be that what they're doing there is that they've uh, massively just temporarily um, overestimated the risk of planes. But the other possibility is that they could think, well, I'll just, you know, I don't have to be on a plane this week, I can go in a fortnight. I might as well find out whether all the planes are going to fall out of the sky at the same time mm -hmm. uh, because something's got wrong. When that doesn't happen, then they just, that, that, that's, I think that's another of the factors. You also get things like the effects that you got with CJD and um, Salmonella, where everybody waits a couple of weeks because they think the price is going to go down, talking right, about yeah, economic yeah, yeah. factors, uh, which, they, which they're right about as well. But on the other side, I think politicians are similarly salient. And I think one of the things that's likely to happen actually over the next few years is it's going to take an enormous amount to convince anybody, having been through these events of the past few years, to do any kinds of restrictions, whatever. I mean, if, uh, if we were to have a really bad flu um, uh, pandemic next year that would otherwise have triggered restrictions, don't you think that people are going to say, oh, for goodness sake, we've been in this for two and a half years, we're not going to do it again. Wow, right? do you really think so? I, yeah. I've been depressed about how compliant the population's been. No, no, but uh, I think the politicians won't. I think what, what do you think? I, I, thought, I thought all these things were popular. I mean, to my horror, that forcing people to stay in their garden and work from home was. Yeah, I, yeah, I, they I, don't I think there would be protests within days. They don't they do it. 80% of people say they want to wear masks forever or something, yeah. and then they don't actually wear them, right? Actually, so, think, yeah. It's a fascinating and really complicated picture because you're right. Every time a poll came back, I thought, oh, Jesus, please, will someone say that they don't like these restrictions? It makes you really disheartened, and you know, you're trying to beat the drum for the independence of the British public, and these depressing poll results keep coming back. 
But I actually think what was happening was that people were genuinely trying to express some kind of the sort of social solidarity that was materially there at the start of the pandemic when everyone signed up to be volunteers and yeah, yeah. all this kind of stuff and, you know, handing out stuff to their elderly and it was all kind of overrun with goodwill. And I think that... I was the only person in the country who didn't applaud the NHS at 8pm <laughs> on a Thursday night. 99% of others did. Yeah, and I think that was... that was the, Even though there was a kind of slightly asinine side to it in relation to the kind of clapping for carers, there was a, you know, a genuine sentiment there of wanting to do the right thing. And I think that's carried through for people. But I think that also quietly, as you say, people have been... They, ha they have been going over to their auntie's house, but they just haven't been posting it on Facebook. There's been that kind of... Which you could say is, uh, is acting in bad faith and everyone should come out and be defiant. But that's not how people operate in times of, of emergency or times of strange kind sure. of social alienation. So it's kind of underground resistance rather than a public protest. I think there's been a, I think there's been a kind of a, a, a quiet um, ignoring of the rules in a way that has been positive rather than people being COVID idiots and selfish as some of the media would like to paint them. Uh, I want to move on to another topic. I know we're losing you very shortly, Ella. Um, Fast-tracked. Has anything been fast-tracked by the pandemic? We've talked about risk uh, that might change forever. People have been talking forever about the new normal. When we come out of this, will our working habits, shopping habits, travelling habits be radically different? So here are some stats to conjure with. Um, proportion of shopping done online increased 50% between 2019 and 2021. Although January 2022 is a third less than January 2021. So are we actually just unravelling and getting back to the old normal? The proportion of people working from home increased from 12% in 2019 to, unsurprisingly, 36% in January 2022. 26% of employees wish to work from home permanently post-pandemic. And I can remember, I think it was about 20 years ago, there was a tube strike. Uh, I can't remember all of the details now. But it forced everybody to find new ways of going to work that week, well, or however long it was the tubes were down. And a surprising number stuck with the habit afterwards, having discovered the bus route or that cycling to work was easy or walking to work was easy or however they went about it, or that it was easier to get a parking space than they thought, they then stuck with the new habit. So it's kind of necessity the mother of invention. And do you think, Ella, that there will be meaningful, radical changes to our working lives, our shopping habits uh, and, and the like, because we experience things in a different way for these bizarre couple of years. Well, there's two things, that I won't go into it because it's too much to in the short time we have, but I think that some of the, the, the actions of the government in relation to the pandemic have laid the way for them to do very similarly restrictive things in relation to climate change. And I think that's going to be a really big yep. problem over the com next coming years. But one other unrelated thing that I've been noticing, and it's been driving me mad and I'm thinking of writing about it, is that I think the pandemic has brought rehabilitated a kind of upstairs downstairs lifestyle among many people my age, particularly um, sort of your average millennial who's working from home, which is that there is because of the reluctance to go out into the city or the workplace or wherever you um, used to go, and there's a desire to retreat back into the safety of zoo, you know all this kind of very twee stuff of zooming in with your, your pajamas and stuff. There has been an increase of you know people down my street. I see endless gorillas drivers or all these kind of um, kind of completely precarious work for for people on very low paid who are delivering you know people ordering an onion in because they can't be bothered to get off their ass and go to the supermarket. Well, and I would just say that's a brilliant sign of the free market, isn't it? It's perhaps you say that. And demand. I think it shows that there is a real. Um, there is a real lack of social cohesion and understanding of social responsibility of what happens when you don't just live in the confines of your four walls. I mean, I remember throughout the pandemic, um, suddenly there was all these articles being written. How dare Pret-a-Manger, you know, fire all these people? What's going on? And no one had said to the people, it's because you're not going in and buying sandwiches. What do you think happens when you leave cities empty? So there's, you know, I think there's, there's also stuff like there's been a new kind of fad for people getting delivered toilet rolls and stuff like this. But there's something really weird. I get my on. toilet rolls delivered. Yeah, well, I'm one of the upstairs uh, people. Mark, there's something really, going, really weird going on with a particular set of the British middle class, which I think has been compounded by a lot 
lockdown mentality. That means that they're just are isolated from normal life. They're isolated from the truckers. They're isolated from the delivery drivers. I think that could have the potential to turn poisonous. But blimey, I'm going to have to apologise <laughs> to you, my lifestyle choice. So uh, let me give you one thing that we have. To, I, I don't think I've ever placed an order for a single onion. But one of the things that I discovered, I say I discovered, the missus does all the shopping. But she would used to go to, go to a supermarket. Uh, she, she would go to a supermarket, stock it up, put it in the back of the car, drive home. She then said, well, I've got to order online. Mm. We've never got round to it before. I've never logged in for a Sainsbury's account or whatever the hell it is. And now we get all of our food delivered every Sunday and she's thinking of selling her car. I mean, that's just a sort of sensible, rational reaction to something new she experienced, isn't it? I mean, and you she's not doing it in a hoity-toity way that she wants poor people to carry her luggage no, for. No, it's just a more convenient way of getting the groceries. And if I was a different person, I'd congratulate you on your green credentials for trying to give up the car. But there, I, what I'm not talking about is sensible decisions that people make in relation to the weekly shop. Um, and accessibility and things like that. I'm not talking about banning anything, but I think that what, uh, you know, the toilet roll and all of that was a bit of a cheap shot, but there is this growing sentiment that life happens within the four walls of your home or indeed your bedroom, that you don't really have, and you don't need to go out and talk to the cashier. You don't need to go out and ask for things. You don't have to interact with society. You don't have to be in the office. You just have to be in this little cocoon. And I think that has a corrosive right. effect on society more broadly, not least because of all the bloody delivery drivers who are growing around dropping off the onions to these lazy ass millennials. I was, uh, I don't know what, your onions, life, Mark. onions, that's the big problem. Uh, Andrew, let me come to you, because the IEA released a, a paper this week called uh, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, an IEA research paper, not a Steve Martin comedy film from the 1980s, but that shares the same name, discussing the impact on transport. Andrew, you were one of our authors for that, and you suggest uh, that car travel is likely to be a beneficiary, actually, long-term, uh, compared to other modes of transport. Car travel's been seen more convenient. We also cover, obviously, clues in the name, uh, trains uh, uh, and uh, flights as well. The rail sector's likely to be vulnerable to upheaval. Many, many rail users will shift permanently to working from home and virtual meetings. That might reduce congestion on the roads that then makes driving a car slightly uh, more attractive. One element of it, Andrew, but tell us about that element and any other. Do you think there will be this necessity of the mother of invention and some long-lasting changes because we finally discovered we can get somebody to deliver us an onion? I, no, I, would, <laughs> say, I would say that uh, quite a lot of what's going to happen is the um, triggering of things that were going to happen anyway. And then there's a small element of changed perceptions and things which are specifically results of the pandemic. So I think that uh, we're going to have, it was probably feasible to um, uh, work from, for people to work more from home for a few years. And uh, that could have happened, but you just didn't this get around to doing it. And this yeah. is made, uh, and it probably would have got there in seven or eight years' time. But now, having gone down that path, then people are uh, working out. Now, it doesn't mean that they'll do it as much as they did during the pandemic. Uh, or, I'm sure all kinds of businesses are working out exactly what the balance is, whether they want their staff in three days a week or four days a week, or quite what it is at the moment. But I don't think that. Pe most people are going to think that the uh, who have had the capacity to work from home are going to think that the correct answer is going back to exactly the way that they were. Mm -hmm. One of the side effects of that is that you have um, less use of office space, particularly in places like London. Um, yeah, the value of this building has definitely fallen. That in, that in consequence will um, potentially uh, mean that you have more use of residential properties in London. So that could have implications for things like housing yeah. um, issues. Sure. Uh, as we, there's going to be spill over effects onto all of these sandwich places and all of that kind of stuff. So um, it seems to me that uh, a, a very large proportion of uh, businesses that rely upon commuters are probably bust or their landlords are bust, whether they know it yet or not, because they probably depend on 80, 90% footfall and they're only going to get 60, 70% in the future. Um, then you're, uh, so you've got a number of things associated with that. On the flip side, of course, you then have as it were, for all your sandwich shops that you don't have um, uh, with sandwiches in London, you're then going to have some sandwich shop off in somewhere in the Shire Counties, in the local place where uh, once upon a time they uh, catered for some builders and some people on a Saturday afternoon. But now they're catering uh, uh, for people working in their gardens. And now they have large queues, exactly, of people every lunchtime. Um, similarly with that, you're going to have challenges to some of the transport infrastructure in those areas, so parking at lunchtime yeah, and yeah. things like that. You're going to have some uh, challenges to those kinds of things. Um, trains, you have... 
I don't know about you, but I used to be able to get a train uh, from where uh, on Thameslink about every six to eight minutes in rush hour. Now there's only three an hour. And so, so and whether that's ever going to go back and when it doesn't go back, because it probably won't, what does that mean for the viability of some of the Literally. train companies and even of the, um, uh, what's the value, the valuations of the network, for yeah. example? Uh, uh, I think that there, I've long warned that there were a lot of um, quite bold assumptions associated with housing projections and demographic projections that had assumed that the uh, drift towards more and more activity being centred upon London itself over decades would continue indefinitely. Uh, I've long argued that that was naive. It seems to me I hadn't anticipated anything like this, but, but, this, but, could, this, but yeah. this just makes true all of the uh, most extreme versions sure. of the warnings that people had about and how you end up I mean how they didn't cancel HS2 in the middle of that I find that absolutely yeah, ridiculous. incomprehensible yeah. Yeah. what an incredible waste of money you had something that was already a white elephant you then have an event which is manifestly going to change all of the commuting patterns yeah. uh, uh, over the future and then you just carry on with it anyway sure. absolutely ridiculous decision that they decided to continue yeah. with that um, but nonetheless they, they've done that so we're going to have these big changes of, the, of this sort. Of course, you have all the, uh, the remote buying. What's that going to mean for um, shopping areas, malls and things? Quite a lot of those are going to go bust. What are they going to be replaced with? Um, so there's, there's loads of different kinds of things which you're going to have here. Some transport, some uh, other kinds of uh, uh, things. You may also find, just one last area, is because we've built all this extra information, IT infrastructure, to facilitate people working from home, that could have beneficial spillover effects in terms of the use of that infrastructure. Sure. So that might a a accelerate some of the developments towards autonomous vehicles and things like that because you've got better communication systems available for them yep. to use. Ella, just before I let you go, because I, I think I've agreed with um, almost everything you've said, and I think apart you and the I, onions. Uh, <laughs> apart from the onions, yeah. Uh, and I think you and I probably would have taken a similarly dim view of the, the way our freedoms were restricted, not just the scale of it, but the manner of it. Give us one thing before you leave us this evening, Ella, that you think something good that might come out of all of this. Uh, well, is there anything? I think we shouldn't shy away from saying that there might be some good things to come out of the pandemic because I think for a lot of people, my father included, looked at the pace of their life, his builder, and you know, thought, what am I doing? You know, had this space of a break which was sort of enforced upon them that said, <clears throat> you know, what is the what is the part of my life that I like and for some people it's the gardening for some people it's doing something they've never done before but I think that little break that was given throughout the pandemic to many people who were either put on furlough or whatever it was was made lots of people suffer and we shouldn't un underplay the fact that furlough was essentially a 20% pay cut it wasn't a mm -hmm. holiday for most people but I think there was a little hiatus where people got the breathing space to say what do I want from my life? And so it's no surprise that, for example, lots of HGV drivers decided they didn't want to drive through the sure. night on pittance and things like that. I think it's given a lot of workers some leeway to say, to reevaluate. Yeah, to reevaluate and to put some. There has been uh, examples of people putting pressure on employers to say, well, we're not going to come back <coughs> to the same conditions we had before the pandemic. So I think it, giving a little bit of space for thinking about our lives and what we want from our lives is, you know, potentially a good thing. Also, I think absence makes the heart grow fonder. And the fact that we have had so much restricted from us will hopefully hopefully, although I'm not, I wouldn't bet on it, make us less likely to give them away so easily if it comes back around. I agree with that. I learned the hard way exactly how much I love going to football matches. And I now cheer on the team rather than scream at them whenever they make an error. Ella, it's been lovely to have you with us. Thanks so much indeed. It's been brilliant to have you with us. Thanks so much. Um, I should say, if you're watching and you're enjoying the show, uh, please uh, hit the thumbs up, the like button. If you're not yet subscribed to the IEA London YouTube channel, please hit that red subscribe thing that you can see on the screen and also hit the notification bell. That will mean that you get informed of all the IEA upcoming uh, content we produce dozens of, uh, of films every month and if in these uh, difficult times you have a few pennies spare please consider becoming an IEA online patron you can find details in the show notes below for as little as five pounds a month you can uh, help us keep the lights on here uh, and even join our, our live audience in the future so uh, thumbs up subscribe notification bell and if you've got a few pounds, do consider supporting the IEA by clicking on the Patreon link below. I want to stay on fast track.
track, but um, let's uh, welcome uh, back to Live with Littlewood uh, the IA's very own COO and Environment and Energy Analyst, Andy Mayer. Andy. <laughs> Um, Andy, what's, let's just uh, mop up on this sort of big changes from COVID. Uh, you, you have to run the organisation here and keep me out of prison. That's why I pay you the big bucks. Quite a task. Um, but you, you deal with all of our operations here. You know, fairly small company, but nevertheless might be indicative of what might change. What are the changes you're expecting that will mean that 2025 is very, very different to 2015? Or are we all overthinking and overstating this? Well, on COVID, possibly. It's too soon to say if that doesn't sound like a bit of a cop-out because it's a bit of a cop-out. It is a total cop-out. What we're noticing first this year is massive inflation in wages and pressure on wages. So we're expecting a very tough pay round uh, with the staff this year. But they should <laughs> My job to be good cop, your yeah. job's to be bad cop. Right? <laughs> they, they, they should rest assured that we are like steel. We are not going to let the IEA become a symbol of inflation in the wider economy. <laughs> Okay, okay, right. So we're going to be, t- for, for any of the staff watching, it's going to be a tough salary round for you. We've got that as well. <laughs> Anything of a more macro level that you might pick out. So it's certainly true to say that the level of homework is increased. We've seen that here, but it's been largely related to the nature of the roles people undertake. People working in research don't need to come in yeah. to do their jobs. And we've seen a lot of that with people working more from home. Some of the new staff that joined in that team have decided they want a more flexible lifestyle and are working from home. If you're in the operations team running, for example, this show, you have to be here, and that's not changed. If you're in the development team, you need to be where the donors are, and that's not changed. So it's going to be very role-specific, but there will be a number of occupations that do change in that fashion. Andrew, let me go on to this working from home thing. I, I'm a bit worried there might be a collective action problem here, and I don't want to you know, suggest that the IEA is a microcosm of the wider economy, but Andy's right. You can obviously see some roles that lend themselves to working from home. If we're employing somebody to work for six months on writing a book, yeah, not obvious they need to do it from prime real estate in Westminster. They can just as well do it. For Chris Snowden can just as well do that from his man shed down in Sussex, right? Um, <laughs> however... Um, I think there is a collective action problem, that there's a certain benefit to the company of basically everybody being here. You, have, you chat with each other, you pick up vibes, ideas are floated, you pick up if somebody's upset about something much more readily than you do if, uh, if um, you know, I, I can pick up whether Chris Snowden's upset when he's here, but when he's locked in his man shed, less so. Do you think that's going to be a problem? Is there, a, is there in economic terms a collective action problem here on the working from home thing? That Although some jobs lend themselves to it, that might just detract from the overall productivity of the company? So there's a couple of dimensions here. First of all, I I agree that there is a benefit to working together for many different kinds of companies, even if they could in principle operate um, Mm -hmm. remotely 100% of the time. And I think that's part of the reason why relatively few companies are going to operate 100% of the time remotely. So many firms that, you know, all kinds of management consulting or, you know, economics consulting, we we operate perfectly happily Mm -hmm. for um, a year, 18 months without ever seeing each other face to face. Um, but that doesn't mean that that's ideal. Now, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that you need to be in five days to achieve that. So you can achieve that sort of synergies and bonding and things yeah, like yeah. that on a bit less yeah, than yeah, those okay. five days. Uh, the other, another aspect of this, which I don't think that one should underestimate, is the international aspect. So we always had people who worked for us who were in, based in Spain, for example. Now through that whole 18 months, they were absolutely on a level. You wouldn't even have known whether the person was in Spain or, you know, Nottingham or yeah, yeah. Uh, wherever else it was, or, you know, Hungary or places that people went home for, to work for a while. Um, and that uh, increased integration into workforces of people who work internationally, um, I think is an underestimated or an under-discussed dimension of these things. And it may become more important with Brexit and those kinds of things that those, that ability to integrate more seamlessly uh, without going to meet people uh, could be quite important. Also, if you're not going to meet people internationally because you're not going to travel through, you know, Eurostar or whatever. Yeah, Another yeah. thing that we've had is we've had a, lo- a big increase in our interactions with clients via 
um, uh, video conferencing. So whereas once upon a time you, to organise with a, a meeting with a client who was in um, the Netherlands, you'd have to say, well, I'll meet you next week and then we'll get it, or three days' time and we'll get a Eurostar and we'll be over. Whereas now, you just say, well, can we meet in 15 minutes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that kind of, so there's an increased globalisation as a consequence of these events. And I think that those factors are quite important. Very interesting. I want to move on now to the next section of the show and give a very warm welcome to Sam Armstrong, Director of Communications at the Henry Jackson Society. Sam, great to have you with us. How are you, buddy? Good to see you. Uh, so, uh, looking further afield now, well, you, you put one crisis behind you and suddenly another one springs up, clearly talking about the Ukraine here, and punishing Putin. Can sanctions and what we're doing actually uh, deter uh, Vladimir Putin from his invasion, or are, is this just another sort of form of virtue signalling by Western powers? Let me just run through before I come to you, Sam, what my understanding is of what's been done. Boris Johnson yesterday said that sanctions would target five, comparatively small it needs to be said, Russian banks, three wealthy individuals. The individuals will see their assets frozen and are banned from entering the UK. UK individuals and entities will also be banned from having dealings with them. President Joe Biden has said there will be no summit meeting with Putin without Russian withdrawal from the Ukraine. The EU and the US have curbed Russia's ability to trade its sovereign debt or raise fresh debt in, in the financial markets as visa bans and asset bans for individuals and politicians. It's estimated that 23 Russian billionaires could lose 23 3.5 billion of their wealth, about a billion each, but that only amounts to 9% of their wealth. <coughs> Sam, uh, today in Westminster there's been a lot of discussions about ha has the rhetoric been at a very high level on trying to deter Putin, but the actual policies uh, rather weak. What's your take on the Henry Jackson Society's take on what's been rolled out, is it sufficient, will it work? Yeah, so I think everyone's pretty much agreed that five banks and three individuals doesn't come close to recognising the full scope of uh, Russian assets in London and even those with uh, enormously close links uh, uh, to, to the Kremlin. Is it going to dissuade him? No, probably not. Uh, I, I think Putin had probably priced in to his decision-making an awful lot more than this already. Uh, now, the reason sanctions on oligarchs kind of work in the first place is that Putin is, to an extent, propped up and dependent on, the, uh, on them. He's not uh, a natural-born king. He's, in, in a sense, the sort of primus interus paras of the uh, gang of Russian crooks that have defrauded the entire people out of their wealth. And uh, their support for him, and he relies on their support, there's no doubt about it, is to an extent incumbent on uh, him being able to keep their wealth, keep their lifestyles and keep both them and their families uh, in the sort of uh, way of living that they've become accustomed to. Let me unpass this. I, I'm absolutely no expert on Russia and I don't want to come across as Mr. Woke on my own show, but I was pulled up the other day and I've corrected myself on this going forward between uh, I was using the term Chinese to really mean agents of the Chinese Communist Party. Is there a danger we're doing that with Russians as well? I mean, I genuinely don't know whether some of these so-called oligarchs, by which I just think we mean extremely rich people, are necessarily pals of Vladimir Putin or dissidents. I mean, the mere fact that you're Russian or, I mean, I heard Laura Kunzberg on the BBC earlier uh, today saying Russian mil money is swilling around London. Well, so is American money. I mean, money swills around London, generally a good thing. How do we split the wheat from the chaff? Or is it the case that sort of any rich Russian is part of the Putin regime as a pretty prima facie to fault starting point. Well, it, it certainly wasn't the case that that was true. After the fall of the Soviet Union, a lot of uh, very entrepreneurial Russians got filthy rich and it was quite a good thing. Um, but over time, what you saw is that Russian oligarchs that um, initially were vocally opposed to Putin had their assets uh, seized, Mihail Hodokovsky and Bill Browder being two uh, very good examples. And then you sort of saw the ones that were neutral observers beginning to lose out to some of the uh, biggest sharks in the ocean. And the, in essence, the uh, more supportive of Putin you were, the uh, faster you were able to obtain and retain wealth. So it is the case now that nobody really in Russia who has obtained you know, top 100 level wealth within the country has been a, an opponent of Putin. Now, that's not to say that they are necessarily an enormous supporter of him, <laughs> but it's, they are certainly not on the side of the angels.
Andrew, let me take you on. What, what do you think of these measures? I mean, we're, we're you know targeting the, the, the sort of super rich Putin supporters seems to be the strategy behind it. No military action likely. I mean, there might be some military supplies <coughs> getting to the Ukraine. Uh, is this likely to have any effect at all? We were talking earlier in the programme about in dealing with the pandemic, did legislation was just that a means of, of sending out a press release in bold? I wonder whether this is actual virtue signalling or whether it's likely to actually have some effect. Well, so going to your early point, I mean, even if, even if a large proportion of people who are rich in Russia are supporters of Putin, that doesn't mean that everybody who's Russian in London is, is a supporter of Putin. That's a quite, I mean, no, exactly. some, of the, no, some of the people who weren't supporters of Putin may, for example, have chosen to leave. Um, the, uh, on the question of um, whether sanctions make any kind of difference, well, now, first of all, what, where Putin is, is a lot less bad than where he might yet go in the, in the Ukraine. And I think that there's a parallelism between uh, that sense that where we've gone on sanctions, we need to leave some places to go so that we still have something to do if he does stuff that's a lot this worse. This is the escalation the argument. Escalation you, argument, yeah. 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 Um, now, and there is quite a lot of scope for escalation. Uh, now, some measures that you might engage in, um, the kind of sanctions that we thought about from the 1980s, might be fairly limited mm -hmm. in effect. But there are some which are absolutely enormous. So there's a range from you know targeting a few individuals and then maybe you could restrict the access of Russians generally to various sorts of goods and services which might be bad for the general population, might create uh, antipathy towards Putin but might not have that much direct effect. And then, then you have measures which are, uh, start to be going to the kind of Armageddon level where you close down the Dardanelles which is so occasionally proposed or you um, uh, refuse to buy any gas uh, from them at all. And then even beyond that to the kind of sanctioning the sort of things that we do where we blacklist any company that deals with Russia at all. So there, there is an enormous scope for additional escalation. And at the high end of escalation, you would be talking about things which would absolutely have an enormous impact mm -hmm. uh, on, on Russia and equally are so extreme that we're probably very unlikely to do them. Um, so Such as? Oh, well, I think we're very unlikely to close the Dardanelles, right. very unlikely to not buy any gas, very unlikely to yeah. blacklist any dealings with Russian companies. I mean, if you really got all through the, you know, that never happened in the in the height of the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, so uh, that, those sorts of things would be very extreme to do. Um, so, uh, refuse to supply them with any food, for example, if you started saying, well, we're not going to give you any wheat if you needed it, so then that kind of thing could yeah, get very yeah. ugly indeed. Um, so uh, th 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 there so are quite them hosting the Champions League final. Well, yes, but in that, but there are, but there's a lot in between doing the most, doing very little, and then doing the most yeah, extreme yeah, okay. measures. And some of the ones, but, the, but one of the issues here, I think, is that some of the ones in the middle are likely to be relatively ineffectual. Right. So you, you have a kind of thing where you target a few individuals, and that has quite a personal effect and a political effect. And or then you, do then you have massive. Then everybody asks for the stuff which is in the middle, which yeah. isn't very effectual. And then people quail at the stuff which yeah, would be okay. absolutely massive, um, which would be at the more, more at the extreme end. Andy, what's your take on this from the kind of IA perspective? I, I'm betwixt and between. I mean, obviously not on you know uh, Putin's regime, but what the right economic response is to it. I mean, we generally argue mm. from a point of view that free-flowing trade and all of the rest of it is the best way um, and and if you act against that you impoverish yourselves and you impoverish uh, innocent people in the in the firing line is this going to work or is this just more state power that will have perverse consequences well it's certainly not irrelevant and the purpose of targeted sanctions like the ones we're seeing are essentially to piss people off who matter to poop in and we have to uh, rely there on MI5, etc., getting it right in terms of who they're targeting. Yeah, how much can we rely on that? <laughs> well, well, I think we'll just have to wait and see. But let's, let's talk about the bigger picture. If we learn from history, how did we beat the Soviet Union? And broadly speaking, we beat them by having a much better economy. The growth of the Soviet Union was utterly pathetic mm -hmm. compared to the West. Um, and what Putin is exploiting at the moment is the current Western obsession with trying to make the price of energy as high as possible, which is only be benefiting the Russian war machine. So one clear big target that we should have is to collapse the price of oil and to collapse the price of gas and then see how long Putin lasts in terms of his own domestic security. And that's perfectly possible. There are plenty of domestic sources of gas across Western Europe, here in the United Kingdom, and especially in the United States. 
But instead of that, we're seeing a collision of two major ideological positions. One is this desire to have security and peaceful friendships in Europe with our near neighbours, and the other is net zero. And mm -hmm. net zero is driving a terrible rise in the price of energy, which is only benefiting Russia at the current time. So I think your solution we can, again, link to in the show notes in a press statement from the IEA was that actually the best response to Putin here domestically is to start fracking like crazy, basically. That Absolutely. would actually change the economic landscape. Um, Sam, what's your broad view of sanctions? I mean, I can, you know, I, I, as I say, I'm sort of indifferent. I genuinely don't know. But if you were to look through the history of them, South Africa, the first boycott um, uh, movement started in 1958. It was more than 30 years later that the apartheid system ended. May have had an impact on the economy and society of South Africa. Certainly did, but not obvious whether there's cause and effect there. North Korea, sanctions have done little to you know, um, push North Korea to abandon its nuclear program or in any way to liberalize. Cuba, 55 years of comprehensive US economic embargo, was, you know, has failed to remove the, the revolutionary regime. So my worry about it, my skepticism, it's, it's, it's not hostility, it's skepticism, is these things are done for show, but I, it doesn't seem to me that the record on regime change or even getting the present regime to change its behaviour is a particularly good one. Yeah, so I think the first thing is to say that, that there's broadly speaking two types of sanctions. There's the sanctions against individuals and there's sanctions against the economy and there's two types of targets. So those that I would say have, have got a Western economy and a dictatorial regime that's doing a series of things that we want to discourage them from doing. And there are those that have got uh, communist economies, North Korea and, and Cuba, f against whom sanctions are never going to have uh, quite the same impact that they can have on this new breed of Western economy authoritarian behaviour that, that you want to stop. I, I think what I would say is that sanctions, uh, it, it is true, what we've come up with so far has not been successful in stopping Putin from doing what he's uh, acting now. But that's not to say that the threat of sanctions hasn't discouraged him or deterred him from going further faster. I think Putin in many ways sees himself as a kind of uh, heir to the Tsars and would quite like to take Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, um, Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine, Belarus, uh, even the Baltic states, and he hasn't, in part because the reaction. Do you think that is right? Because I mean, it's obviously you might well be right, but it's a kind of unfalsifiable argument, isn't it? I mean, there's no counterfactual there. I mean, there's, what's the sort of? How would we ever know? Well, uh, that is true, but I think what you can take from Putin is his comments or unguarded remarks over the years. I mean, Condoleezza Rice has come out in the last couple of days, and she said, "Well, back in 2008, Putin said to me." The Ukraine isn't a proper country. Um, it should never have existed in the, in the first place. It's part of Russia. He certainly speaks as if um, and makes speeches and remarks in which he says all Russian-speaking peoples, which is uh, which are, uh, are people that go significantly beyond current Russian Federation borders, uh, should be ruled from Moscow. So he was, he certainly has uh, loftier ambitions, which have hence far been restrained. I think what I would say about sanctions on, on Putin, and I think in, to an extent you're right, you can never prove one way or the other in the end, but you know the package we came up with after Crimea and after Georgia has not yet been enough to discourage him from these kind of one or two regions at a time takes. Andy? So a little bit more optimistic than Sam. I think Putin is cleverer than that and he's been somewhat scarred by the experience of Chechnya earlier in his regime. Uh, he doesn't want to invade countries en masse to create situations where he'd be embroiled in an Afghanistan or Chechnya-like situation for potentially years to come. That would destroy and undermine his support at home. What he's looking at instead is very targeted salami slicing of neighbours, particularly targeting strategic resources. So you have the north-south pipeline that crosses from one part of Russia to another that goes through the Donbass region. You have some of the largest reserves of shale gas in the Ukraine under Donetsk. I mean, this is an area of the country that he really wants, and he can use the excuse that it's also got quite a strong Russian minority, and one that's also quite predetermined to be hostile to the West and the EU in particular. Andrew, do you think that the fallout of this, um, uh, I, I was watching some commentary on this on BBC Politics Live earlier, and Matthew Taylor, Taylor the Chief Executive of the NHS Confederation, uh, who you'd expect to be on the BBC talking about the Ukraine, obviously, uh, but he posited that he thought 
we haven't really got the stomach for this. We'll do this, but um, in a couple of years' time, we'll just run out of road. This is, he didn't say, this is a foreign land of which we know little, but that was the, that's what I inferred from it. If, if anything that we do starts to harm us in Britain, and I'd like your analysis of whether it will on energy prices, say, uh, do you think actually any efforts here will run out of road pretty fast. It's all very well to make these grand statements, uh, Boris sounding positively Churchillian, but actually to follow through, you need the public to say, yeah, I'm willing to make quite a sacrifice to make sure that we hold back Putin. And I don't know whether they're there or not. I, I think it depends a little bit on where, the extent to which Putin seemed to start to threaten us or things that we directly cared about, or in which Putin seemed to be acting in ways that oppressed people. So, thing, you know, s s tales of bad things that happened to civilians and the like. Uh, the, uh, each of those could create a problem. If, if Putin just parks his tanks where they are yeah. and then just waits, then I think that the, I think the Germans are going to be going for Nord Stream 2 in a couple of years' time and, and uh, everyone will start. In much the same way that nobody really thinks that we're going to go and do anything at Crimea. Yeah, now, yeah. I think that, that eventually he'd just make it a settled reality. But, uh, and that's one of the risks. For, I mean, he doesn't actually have a lot more now than he had in, uh, than he had, uh, in 2014. He's still actually a long way behind in some ways. I mean, at the beginning of 2014, he had a, um, a Russian sympathetic president. They were about to sign up to this Russian zone of economic control and this military alliance. And now, actually, he's only got, what is it, 21% of the yeah. country under his control and the same as he had before. In terms of things that might have an impact on us um, as a consequence of this, well, probably the most obvious is impacts on oil and uh, prices and so on. They may stay higher for longer. And oh, quite painful in a cost of living crisis. That, that, that could have some impacts for us on inflation. Um, another thing, of course, is that that's not necessarily that unhappy from his point of view in terms of his oil, uh, in terms of his gas sales and so on. So he might want, it, there could be advantage in him in letting things calm down again and then, um, you know, creating another crisis in a little while's time to, to get the prices up again. But, uh, but so I think that it could have an impact for inflation. And that's perhaps the inflation is a big issue which our politics has failed to uh, think, uh, understand it's going to have to grapple with. Andy, do you think you'll get your IEA way for the wrong reasons, very briefly, that the, these pressures might actually lead to a shale gas revolution in the UK when we were considering it in peacetime in normal circumstances? No. But will this lead us to re-look at domestic energy? It's possible. I think at the moment uh, Parliament isn't there yet. They're still very wedded to the idea that they can get around this problem by investing in wind turbines. And I hate to break it to Parliament, but Vladimir Putin is not afraid of British wind turbines. Yeah, yeah. What he is afraid of is losing uh, currency. And he's not going to lose currency by us having to buy gas at the margin, a very high price, which is what happens when you have a very large amount of renewables on your grid. Sam, I'm going to give the last word to you. How, how do you see this panning out? It's very hard to say how will it end. I mean, history never ends. But do you think this is going to be, I mean, are we going to kind of rediscover a Truman do doctrine about spheres of influence somehow along the line? I mean, I'm not saying the Cold War's back. Worth remembering that Russia has the same GDP as Spain. It's not quite like the USSR against the, uh, the USA at the time of the Cold War. What happens next? Leave us with that thought. Well, I think it's certainly clear that Putin has got to uh, move right through Donetsk and Luhansk at the moment. The battle lines are essentially drawn about halfway through. He said very publicly that they intend to go the full way. If there's one thing that we know about Putin, he doesn't like uh, losing face. So there it is, he's going. And with it, there will be war in which uh, arms that until two months ago were in the hands of the British Army are now going to be firing uh, rockets uh, Russian tanks and boy will they hit and boy will they blow up a Russian tank so uh, what's coming in the near future? Uh, that sounds like escalation, do you think it's going to get pretty full-blooded? It's going to have to escalate at least to the border of Donetsk and Luhansk. The big question, the big question is, uh, Putin has got troops on the southern Belarusian border, does he uh, march for Kiev and with that try and install a, a different government? Uh, should he do so I mean, we will be looking at proper sanctions, including blocking Russians uh, from obtaining semiconductor chips, um, uh, any access to the London's financial markets, or indeed the, the, the SWIFT 
financial systems. Now that, to, to answer your earlier question, is going to have a knock-on impact on prices and the, the economic well-being of people in, this, in the UK. So, um, and do you think they'll conclude this is a foreign land of which we know little, or do you think we'll, we'll actually say, no, this is a matter of principle for us? Well, right now, 70% of the British public are strongly supportive of further sanctions. Uh, I think it's going to take quite a lot for that to uh, run out. I think the public would never support British troops getting involved, but my view is, uh, in the face of further aggression, the the shadow of Munich has 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 lied long in their in their minds, and I don't think um, anybody, uh, many people in this country, I should say, um, will want the idea of a dictator able to invade successive borders and to do so with impunity. Sam, Andy. Andrew, thanks for your brilliant and discordant views. My thanks too to Ella who was on the show earlier. Thanks to everybody who's watching at home and to our studio audience here. We'll be back in two weeks time. If you enjoyed the show, please hit that thumbs up and make sure you're subscribed by hitting that red subscribe button and the notification bell. And if you've got a few pennies spare, uh, then do consider becoming an IEA online patron. My huge thanks to our online patrons in our very top tier, Donald Blaney, Costa Manis, James Burns, Mark Edwards, Philip Ozuf, Richard Leader, Robert Appleby and Timothy Worrell. We greatly appreciate your support. Stay safe, stay free, over and out.